Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. As Mark said, my name is Chris Beals, and uh, I have a wife named Lindsay and a one-year-old named Ellie, and just wanted to thank you for, uh, so many of you have have um, helped us transition so well here. Um, We felt so loved and cared for it, even from day one. And so just wanted to thank you for, uh, for just offering that love to us. And this is a privilege for me to, uh, to serve us in this way, to teach us God's word. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer before we look at Hebrews chapter 12. God, we acknowledge before you that in this very moment, King Jesus holds the universe together that in him he has all power and all authority. And so we ask as our Bibles are open that you would teach us your word from that power. God, we pray that this would be much more than an intellectual exercise, but that we would encounter you. And God, help us to be changed as we leave this place. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, being the new guy on staff, uh, I've learned a few things um, about the staff. In fact, there are a couple athletes on the staff team that like to train for long-distance marathons. And let me just emphasize the word like. They actually enjoy this, these long-distance marathons, a.k.a. just torture mechanisms. Um, I'm much more of a guy. You give me a basketball in my hands and I'm happy. Um, but that's great. You know, I, I enjoy people who, who you know, perform long-distance marathons. And in fact, I came across an inspiring story uh, about a marathon runner named Simon Clark. Simon Clark ran in the 2012 London Marathon. And the interesting thing about Simon Clark is that she suffered from ep- epileptic seizures. In fact, during this run, she had almost 20 seizures while running. And the extraordinary thing about this story is that she actually finished the race. She had a close friend who ran along with her, helping her after each seizure, and she crossed the finish line. Now, despite the fact that the winner of the race finished several hours before her, I would say that Simon Clark's finish was much more impressive. In fact, many times throughout Scripture, we see the use of metaphor to describe the Christian life. 
And in our passage here today, the author of Hebrews uses this this metaphor of running a race to describe the Christian life. The goal is to complete it successfully. The purpose of this imagery is to inspire his audience to live faithfully in perseverance and endurance. And so we see that key verb in the exhortation in verse 1 of let us run. Now notice that the author of Hebrews includes himself in this. He says, let us run because he too needed to press on and persevere. I think it's important to note that this race, is, it's not a sprint. It's not a short distance, but it's more of a marathon. It's a long distance run. And the goal, as I said earlier, it's to endure. It's to finish the race. It's not to overtake others or to defeat others. It's to cross the finish line. Simon Clark had every reason to give up, had every reason to throw in the towel, had every reason to quit the race, and yet endured, crossed the finish line, and persevered. And as followers of Jesus, we are all in this race, whether we know it or not. The question is, how are we running today? And that's the question I want to start off with for us today is, is how are you doing with this whole endurance aspect of the Christian life? Where does this text find you in the race of the Christian life? Perhaps you're here today and you would say, I'm running well, that I'm running with faithfulness, I'm running with endurance, my walk with the Lord is strong. But perhaps there are others who are here today and you'd say, Chris, I'm, I'm spiritually tired. I'm fatigued. I'm, I'm worn out spiritually and emotionally. I'm about ready to give up that perhaps there are things going on in your life that that are really, really challenging. Maybe things going on in your marriage. Maybe things at work are stressful, or you just received bad news from a doctor. Or maybe as a parent, you've thought to yourself, if I have to change one more diaper, or if my child vomits on me one more time, I'm going to lose it. Where does this text find you today? And maybe you're not in those camps, but maybe you're, you're in this other camp where you're not tempted to give up completely in the Christian life, but you're tempted to give up in smaller ways. It's very similar in, in our marriages. We're, we don't walk away completely from our marriages, but we may give up in smaller areas, maybe listening attentively to our spouse or even at work. We, we don't quit our works completely, but we might check out Friday afternoon mentally. Does that describe you today in in the Christian life, in this race? Are you tempted to give up in small areas, in different arenas of your life? Maybe sexual purity or the way you use your money. Where are you in this race? Yet no matter where this text finds you today, no matter where you are spiritually, my, my hope and my prayer is that we would not only see this clear command of, of how to endure in this Christian life, but that we would see the importance, that we would see the significance, that we need endurance in order to cross the finish line. This is a non-negotiable for those who are followers of Jesus. And so as we move through this text, we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 6, and verses 1 through 11 were read for context's sake. And I'm just going to point out four keys to running this race with endurance. So let's look at number one here. Number one. The race is much bigger than me. The race is much bigger than me. In in verse 1a here, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Now, in the opening chapter of chapter, in the opening sentence of chapter 12, there is a significant shift from the past and from the negative example of Israel to imagery that paints a picture of an athletic stadium in the present. And so in chapter 12, we are immediately met with the word, therefore. So what the author is doing here is he's using the word, therefore, to connect chapter 11 with chapter 12. So he's basically saying, therefore, or because of what I just got done saying in chapter 11, and since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, run with endurance. So the question is, well, what is he trying to connect in chapter 11 and chapter 12? Well, in chapter 12, he's, he's trying to identify who the cloud of witnesses actually are. And if you know your Bibles, you know chapter 11 is also known as the Great Hall of Faith. So we have this long list of individuals of old who demonstrated great faith and great trust in God. And the author of Hebrews is pointing out for us that those individuals make up this cloud of witnesses that surround us. But how are we to understand this cloud? It's kind of this ambiguous term. Well, cloud was a common metaphor for a great throng of people. This throng of witnesses is the men and women of chapter 11 who received testimony from God in Scripture to the endurance of their faith. So we have this imagery of an amphitheater with ascending rows of spectators watching us from the grandstands. And the author of Hebrews wants us to be aware of these witnesses, these great individuals of the faith, in order to run the race well. Now let me point out for us that this wouldn't be the first time that the author of Hebrews points out something that we have and then gives us a command. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, the author of Hebrews points out that we have a great high priest Therefore, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Do you see the connection there? That we have a great high priest, therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence. And then chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, he says that you have confidence to enter the sanctuary of the house of God. That we have confidence so we can approach God. And now in chapter 12, we have this great cloud of witnesses Therefore, run the race with endurance. The question is, though, how does that impact us in the 21st century? I mean, what role does this cloud of witnesses play as we try to run this race with endurance? Well, I found a, a quote by Peter O'Brien in his commentary on Hebrews that sheds some light on the role of these witnesses. And they put this on the screen here for me to read for us. He says, these champions of the faith of old are spectators, but they are more than just spectators. They are spectators who interpret to us the meaning of our struggle and who bear testimony to the certainty of our success if we run well. Notice what the cloud of witnesses provide for us. They give us this perspective that this race is much bigger than just me, that life is not about me, that God is not about me, that this race is not about me. The cloud of witnesses remind us that as we run this race and as we live this life, that we are a part of something that's been going on for thousands of years and it's been run by thousands upon thousands of individuals. And so what that means for us practically, it means that as, as the issues that we face in this life, the struggles that we endure, the sufferings that we, that we go through are not unique to us. 
but that many have gone through the same things and yet have endured until the end. And so they remind us that this life is not about me, that God doesn't exist for me. It seems like the tone of of the author of Hebrews is basically saying here that the more that you're aware of the cloud of witnesses, the better you are to just zoom out of being so self-obsessed and focused on you. The cloud of witnesses remind us that we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves. I remember for me growing up, basketball was, was a big thing for me. And I remember I, I was the ball hog growing up. I was that kid that, that never passed. I always wanted to shoot. And my dad, being the coach, pulled me aside and had a life-changing conversation with me that, that impacted not just basketball, but my whole life. He said, you need to pass. <laughs> you need to realize that this team doesn't revolve around you. That this team, if it's going to succeed, you need to get your eyes off of yourself. I think it's the same point here with, with the author of Hebrews, that we need to keep our eyes off of ourselves and onto the fact that, that many have gone before us. So we need this awareness because this gives us perspective in order to run the race well and finish the race. So this race is much bigger than me. The second key that I want to point out for us today is that the race requires us to lay aside sin Still in verse 1 here, it says to lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. Now the imagery that the author is using here of laying aside every weight comes from the first century with how runners would prepare themselves for a race. That runners would basically strip down to a bare minimum of clothing and they would lay aside or put off any type of weight that would hinder them from running well. So the command is clear here. Put off, lay aside, take off any weight, any sin, any distraction that will keep us from running with endurance. Notice that the author says to lay aside two things here. Lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. That the weight here could refer to even good things in our life. Those good things that might draw attention from our eyes not being fixed on Jesus, but upon those good things. Maybe a relationship or, or success or accomplishment. Those things that might be good, but have become ultimate in our life. T- take the illustration that we just saw a few minutes ago with the treadmill. Water is a good thing, but it serves as a weight as you, if you bring it on as you run on the treadmill. It's the same idea here. But as we look to imply, apply this command, I want to point out two concerns that I have that that stem from my own life in seeking to lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. And hopefully it's of some help for us today. Here's the first concern that I have for me. I don't always know what's dragging me down. That I have blind spots. That I have areas of my life that I just can't see. That areas of my life that that, that are sin that's dragging me down in this race. Can you relate with that today? Do you have blind spots in your own life? Do you have areas of your life that that you can't see that might be dragging you down in this race? It'd be like a runner who who puts on a cloak and yet doesn't quite realize how weighty that cloak is as the runner runs. And so he begins running and it's slowing him down, but he's unaware of it. Does this describe how you are in running this race with endurance? When was the last time that you asked yourself the question, 
is there something in my life that I'm missing? Is there something in my life that's, that's dragging me down that I might be unaware of? In fact, what runners would do in this time is they would have a coach or a partner or a close relative that would inspect them before running the race. They would look to see if they had any, any extra clothing or excess body weight. See, runners knew all too well that they couldn't risk preparing for a race alone. So my question for us today is, do you have that somebody in your life that has permission to speak into you, that has permission to point out blind spots in your life, to point out areas of your life that they see that, that you might be missing? Would we have the courage today, even the humility to go home and, and ask our spouses or ask our close friends or roommates, hey, do you see something in my life that I'm missing? Do you see something in my life that's dragging me down? This is so important because we cannot confess, we cannot repent of the sin that we don't see. There's another concern I have in, in applying this command to our life is there's no sense of urgency to fight sin at all times. That I might be aware of the sin in my life and, and yet I see some sin that's in my life and I, and I choose to domesticate the sin, almost treat it like a pet instead of immediately putting it to death. And I wonder if, if you can relate to that today, that you might be aware of, of perhaps even small sins in your life, and instead of laying it aside, you domesticate it. You choose to kind of hide it and take care of it instead of putting it to death. I want us just to pause for a moment and, and think about the sin that's in our life that continually drags us down. Think about the sin in your life that, that continually trips you up in this race. That maybe for you, it might be pride. Perhaps it's jealousy. Maybe it's gossip or sexual morality. Just think about the sin that's in your life that continually trips you up. Or perhaps even a weight in your life. Maybe a good thing that's, that's stealing your attention away from Christ. And, and I want you to ask yourself this question that I oftentimes ask myself to help me. And it's this. Why do I not have a more aggressive approach in putting to death the sin that's in my life? Why do I not have a more offensive posture in crucifying that sin that's in my life? Or maybe to put differently, how is that sin working out for us? Is that sin actually satisfying us? Is that sin actually giving us what we need? I mean, think about it for a moment. Think, think about this. Does anybody ever get done, get done sinning and think to themselves, man, that was so good for my soul? No. Does anybody ever get done arguing with their spouse, say things that they shouldn't, and think to themselves, man, that, that's why I was created? No, hopefully not. Or what about this one? Does anybody ever get done looking at pornography and think to themselves, man, that really deepened my soul. No. No, in fact, the, the sin wants to destroy us. That, that sin not only wants to steal our joy, that sin wants to disqualify us from the race. And so if we seek not to put aside the sin in our life, it'll not only slow us down, but it might even disqualify us and eliminate us from this race. It's almost like if you've ever lost a significant amount of weight, you quickly realize how much that weight was impacting your life before you lost it. That extra weight was impacting your energy and your relationships. It's the same with lingering sin. 
that we oftentimes don't realize how much the lingering sin in our life is really impacting how we run this race. That we far too often underestimate the power and the influence of lingering sin in our life, even the small sins. So we need to lay aside, we need to put off every weight, every sin that's in our life in order for us to endure and finish this race. The third key here that we see in this passage is that the race demands that we fix our eyes on Jesus. The race demands we fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's look at verses two through four. Let's start in verse two. Author says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now the author continues to use this metaphor of running a race as athletes competing in a race must keep their eyes fixed on a goal towards which they are running. Now the verb here rendered, or this phrase looking to, means to look onto something in the sense of relying upon it, looking to someone for support or inspiration. So we are to look to Jesus to keep looking to Jesus. And, and when we're tired of looking to Jesus, to keep looking to Jesus some more. Question is for us is, how does looking to Jesus actually help us in this race? How does fixing our eyes upon Christ help us endure in this race? Well, the answer to that question is, is seen in, in what the author says about Jesus in this passage. Let's start with the fact that he's the founder and the perfecter of our faith that Jesus is the author, that he's the pioneer, that he's the very foundation of our faith, that we look to Jesus because he not only begins our faith, but perfects it or finishes it. Jesus being the founder of our faith can be understood as the basis of our faith, that through his sinless, perfect life, through his death on the cross, and through his resurrection, he provides the foundation for believing in him, that he fulfilled all of God's promises for all who believe, giving faith a basis. And upon him, we place our faith, which is a gift from God that we receive, something that Jesus has founded in believers. And so when we transfer our faith away from ourselves and onto the person and work of Jesus Christ, we receive his righteousness. We receive his perfection. We receive his blamelessness. And now we are hidden in Christ. So he not only founds our faith, but he perfects it. He's the one who brings it to a successful conclusion. That when Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, he brought faith to its ultimate goal. So how does this help us run well? Let's get a little bit more practical here. What this means as Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, And because of his substitutionary death on the cross, we no longer run this race trying to earn God's approval. That we no longer try to run this race trying to earn God's love, trying to earn God's acceptance. But as we run this race looking to Jesus and continually looking to Jesus, he disarms our obsessive and enslaving desire to earn God's love. Isn't that freeing? Is that like a weight being lifted? That we don't have to run this race of the Christian life trying to earn God's approval. Jesus already did that. 
that Jesus has already earned everything that God requires of us. And so, we don't run well and obey God with this weight on our shoulders that God's love depends on our performance as we run. But that weight is lifted because of Jesus, and now we can run with a joy and a thankfulness and a love. And so, we don't put off sin. We don't lay aside sin in order to earn God's approval, but we do that to demonstrate that we have God's approval in Christ. That God, as we see in this passage, he's not on top of of a ladder looking down. He's not telling us to climb. But in fact, we see God who hangs on a cross and says, it is finished. And I just wonder today, and In a crowd this large, I wonder if there are some here who are still trying to earn God's approval as you run this race. That you believe that that God's love depends upon your performance, depends upon your obedience. And I just have a blunt question for you today. Aren't you tired today? Aren't you exhausted? Aren't you tired of being tired Aren't you exhausted of, of instead of fixing your eyes on Jesus, you're, you're fixing your eyes on a mirror looking at yourself? Aren't you tired today? Maybe there are some here today who you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You wouldn't say that you're a follower of Jesus. Can I plead with you today? Maybe today is the first day that you look at Jesus for the first time in a saving way that maybe you can enter into the race and live with purpose and live with a hope. Could today be the day for you to respond in faith to Christ? But why is this so significant? Why is this so important as we run this race with endurance in finishing the race? Well, it's because you and I, we become what we behold. You become what you behold that whatever the eyes of your soul are upon, you will shape your life, you will center your life around that. Take money, for example. That if your eyes are fixed upon making a lot of money, you will therefore center your life around that. You will prioritize work above everything else because that's what your eyes are fixed upon. So it begs the question for us today, what are the eyes of your soul fixed upon? What are you centering your life around as you try to run this race? I mean, take runners. For example, as runners run a race, they're fixated on what? They're fixated on a finish line. And for us as followers of Jesus, as believers, our finish line is Jesus Christ. And if we're honest today, there there are so many competing finish lines in our life. I mean, even good things in our life that they're taking too much attention away from our gaze upon Jesus. Maybe worry or stress or being obsessed with accomplishment or, or other things. But what is it in your life that's, that's competing with your focus and your gaze? Whatever our eyes are looking at will determine the direction of our life. So because this is so significant Because this is so very important, the author of Hebrews explains that even Jesus had his eyes fixed on a prize. Look at at the second half of verse 2 here. It says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Now, given the, the clear athletic imagery that governs our passage, the phrase here, the joy set before him, could be said the prize set before him. So as Jesus, being the perfect example of running a race with endurance, he too had to keep his eyes fixed on the prize. So what was the prize for Jesus? What did he have his eyes fixed upon? The prize was the joy. And it was the type of joy that enabled him to endure the cross. But what joy is the author talking about here that that Jesus had his eyes fixed upon? What was the kind of joy that gave Jesus the endurance of persevering his death? Not this passive acceptance of his death, but persevering through his death and a type of joy that allowed him to endure the shame of his death. This joy that Jesus had to endure the cross was knowing that he would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. That he had his eyes fixed on that as he ran his own race. That sitting down at the right hand of the Father is the guarantee of the absolute exaltation of Christ and the utter security of those who have placed their hope in Christ. So, just as Jesus endured and obtain this joy, which is his enthronement at God's right hand. So us, as followers of Christ, as we run this race, we are to keep our eyes on Jesus, who is our joy, now and when we see him face to face. So this encourages us to run with perseverance so that we too can reach the finish line. But this is why I love this passage so much. Because the author doesn't stop there with emphasizing looking to Jesus. Look at verses 3 and 4 here. He says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I just want to point out a few things about these verses here. Let's start with the word consider. Consider is an imperative that's different than the phrase fixing your eyes on in verse 2. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's heightening the appeal, which now directly relates to their situation of apathy, that they too were tempted to give up. And so he uses this word consider, which means to reason with careful deliberation, which is different than fixing your eyes upon. Fixing your eyes upon or looking to means to look at something for inspiration or support, what we just mentioned there. But consider is used here to bring a fresh point to the listener's attention. He's basically saying you should focus all of your thoughts and all of your attention on Jesus who endured such great hostility from sinners. And the author says to consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself to describe the extreme hardship that Jesus went through but endured. Jesus would have been the perfect example for this congregation to hear because of what they were currently going through. Hebrews 10, let me just read a few verses here that explain the situation that they were going through. It says this, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Listen to this. He says, Therefore, 
Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So in other words, endurance of hostility at the hands of sinners is precisely what this congregation needed to hear because of the circumstances that they were going through. That Jesus was the perfect example to look at as the author of Hebrews heightens the appeal to look at Jesus and to consider Jesus and do not look away from Jesus. And then in the second half of this verse, he says, do this so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. But why use two different words here? Why use weary and faint-hearted? Well, basically the author of Hebrews is trying to get at the same struggle that you're weary if you work and work and work, you might be faithful, and yet you're tempted to give up. Faint-hearted, on the other hand, you're working, 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 but you're losing heart as you work, and you're tempted to give up. So he's targeting that same temptation to give up in this race. And so he draws our attention to the example that Jesus set as he endured the cross by setting his eyes on the prize of joy. And look at verse 4 here. He says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so here in this verse, the author acknowledges the fact that his audience has suffered a great deal. And yet, they haven't suffered to the point of shedding blood like the martyrs and like Jesus did. And yet, Jesus and the martyrs remain faithful. And so the question that the author of Hebrews is posing is will you remain faithful in less suffering? And that's really the question for us today, isn't it? Will we remain faithful when we're tempted to grow weary or faint-hearted? That in the Christian life, in this race, we're all going to face times and seasons of life in which we're tempted to give up. And maybe not totally, maybe not walk away from the faith, but again, as I mentioned earlier, but giving up in smaller areas of the Christian life. I wonder if there are some here today who that describes you, that you're just hanging by a thread today, that you're tempted to give up, you're tempted to quit this race or different aspects of the Christian life. Can I encourage you today? If, you, if you're weary, if you're faint-hearted, can I, can I encourage you to draw your attention to the text today, to, to look at verses 2 through 4, to not only look to Jesus, but to consider him with, with a deliberate attention, to look to Jesus, look to the one who endured from sinners such hostility, to look to the one who promises never to leave us or forsake us, the one who promises to perfect our faith, to bring it to a full conclusion, to trust Jesus, to look to Jesus. That if you're weary today, consider him, look to him, pray to him, worship him, read about him in the word, talk about Jesus with other people, be consumed with Jesus, daydream about Jesus, never get over Jesus. That if you're weary today, find those things in your life that grow a desire for Jesus in your heart and, and just surround your life with them. And then find those things in your life that, that rob you of that desire for Jesus, that, that caused your attention to, to not be on Jesus, and cut them out of your life. To daily, if 
you're weary, daily position your soul and feast upon the greatness of Christ. That that's how we overcome being weary and faint-hearted, that we look to Jesus and we never get old of Jesus. And yet that's not the only thing that we see in this passage. The fourth key in running well and running with endurance and in finishing the race comes in verses 5 and 6. Now, these verses are extremely important because members of this community may have wondered why God's people suffer insult, persecution, or suffering at all. And so these experiences, as we all know, they can make us doubt God's love. They can cause us to grow weary or faint-hearted. So I love this about the author. The author anticipates such questions and responds with a gentle but firm correction on how to view discipline from the Lord. That this fourth key, that we are to view discipline from the Lord as grace. And this is the very reason why he quotes Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. He quotes this passage in Proverbs to show this parent-child relationship and the necessity it is for the child to trust the father. That when we receive discipline from the Lord, whether it be correction or suffering or trial, that we are to view it as grace. That even though it doesn't feel good, that we still trust in the fact that God is good. That our Father knows what's best for us, even though it hurts during the suffering and the discipline. And as I was thinking about uh, this whole idea of a parent-child relationship in the form of discipline, I thought about my own self being a young father. I have a one-year-old daughter named Ellie, and uh, they're going to show a picture on the, on the screen here to give you an idea of how cute that she actually is, <laughs> which makes it all the more difficult to discipline her. Now, we love being parents. Lindsay and I adore Ellie. We're enjoying being parents. And yet there's some difficult moments in parenting. For instance, we're, we're trying to, to, you know, feed her uh, in her high chair. And so we put her in the high chair. We put food there. And, and what she automatically does is she takes that food and she just drops it to the floor. And so it's obviously very, very frustrating. So Lindsay and I are thinking, okay, how, how do we be good parents here? How do we discipline a one-year-old? And so we were encouraged to use the word No. So, first couple of times, Ellie takes the food, drops it, and we stop everything. We look out in the eyes and we say, Ellie, no, you need to eat your food. And the first couple of times we did that, she kind of looked at us and, and almost gave this look like, you're going to say no to me, the princess? You don't say no to me. And, uh, and so now, you know, a few months later, what she does, you know, she takes the food, she drops it on the floor, and as she's dropping it, she just shakes her head, you know, almost like mock us. It's human depravity for you, 101. But here's the thing about that image. As I was thinking about this text and viewing discipline from the Lord as grace, don't we do the very same things with God? That as we receive correction or, or suffering or, or trial, we start to doubt God. God, what are you doing? Do, do you know what you're doing up there? And the same way with, with Ellie. Ellie can't possibly understand that for her to eat, it's to gain nutrition. It's for her to grow. And that when I say no, when, when we discipline her, it's not to steal her of joy, but it's to help her flourish in life. 
And it's the same thing with receiving discipline from the Lord, that God does that to help us fix our eyes on Jesus so that we not only endure this race, but that we actually complete it and finish the race well, that we receive discipline from the Lord to make us holy and to grow in sanctification, although painful. And so just by way of application this morning, if we were at coffee, at some coffee shop and sitting across the table, I would, I would ask you the following questions in applying this, pas- this passage to your life. So let me just run through a couple of these here. Here's the first one. In applying this passage, how are you doing in thinking that life is about you? In thinking about this race is about you, thinking that God exists for you? Maybe to put differently, if I were to ask a spouse or a coworker, if you live life and it's centered around you, how would they answer that question? Another question for us by way of application is what is keeping you personally from running the race of the Christian life well? What weight in your life, perhaps maybe even a good thing that, that, that has become ultimate in your life, but what sin in your life is taking your focus off of Jesus and what is keeping you from putting to death that sin in your life. Next question here. What are the eyes of your soul really fixed upon? Because we become what we behold. What are you centering your life around truly? Again, maybe to put differently, if I were to ask your kids or maybe uh, coworkers or close friends what you fix your life around, how would they answer that question? And then the last question here is, Are you viewing discipline from God as grace? Are you trusting him through it? That as you receive discipline and correction, that you're trusting him? Is your first response when you receive discipline, God, get me out of this discipline? Or is your first response, God, I'll stay here as long as you want me to be in it because I know this is for my good, that this is gonna help me run with endurance. So today as we uh, look to communion, we have the great opportunity to apply this passage. And so as we take communion, ushers, I'm going to call you uh, to the front here. And as we look at applying this passage in, in the arena of communion, we can do that in really two ways. Number one, as, as, I, as I pray here this morning and, and as we listen to a song, I just want to encourage you to think about any type of sin that's in your life that you need to lay aside. Any sin that's in your life that that you need to put to death and just do business with God here in this moment. And then the second way that we can apply this passage to our life is to consider Jesus, to look to Jesus, that as we look at the elements that Jesus did shed his blood for us on the cross. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd encourage you not to partake in communion here, but I want to encourage you just to, just to look at your own soul that today might be the day that you place your faith in Jesus. And so let me pray for us, and then we can pass out the elements. God, we praise you for being such a great God. God, thank you for the power of your word. God, thank you that it's alive, that it's active. Lord, thank you that your word points us to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. God, as we look to communion, we want to consider Jesus, the sacrifice that he made on the cross, that he took our place, that he took 
our penalty. God, help, help this time to be a time where we reflect greatly on him. We pray this in your name. Amen.